Hey there. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Live the Podcast, where we have real, meaningful, and fun conversations with people who inspire us. And sometimes we just have them with each other. We are your hosts, Jess and Steph Dadon. So excited to be in your ears today. Oh my goodness. I am loving your energy, sister. What are you on right now? Well, I've come off the back of a very good weekend. It was my birthday on Friday, as we talked about, and I know everyone's not that down for a birthday in ISO. I know I was like so not into it, but can I tell you, I had the best time. People just make you feel so special on your birthday. You know, you think birthday is all about the fun things that you get to do and maybe the presents that you get. But I can tell you by 10.30 a.m., I had received some of the most beautiful text messages that just made me so emotional. And I feel like it showed me that birthdays are actually just about all of the amazing people in your life and it's a day for them to show you love. So I was just like super loved up all day and pretty much all weekend and I'm still running on that high. That is really nice. Isn't it funny how like ISO teaches us so many lessons and that is just another one. It's really about the simple things. Like you were so appreciative of messages you got on your birthday, which pretty much everybody gets, but usually it's like, okay, cool. And now what, you know? Yeah. Well, and it also just reminded me, why do we all wait for birthdays to tell people how much they mean to us? We could be doing things like that every other day that would make people feel special. It doesn't just have to be about their birthday. So I think that that was a really nice learning that came out of the day. Mm, That's so true. And also, I know you said it wasn't about what you did, but I have to say I planned a pretty epic surprise because at 4 p.m. on Friday, all you knew was I was planning something for you and you logged on to Zoom and I was there with Renan, Elliot was with you and your best friend Jidge in London was there and we had ourselves a dance party for an hour oh and God. I don't know why we all haven't been having Zoom dance parties because it was so much fun. Oh, it was so much fun and I didn't realize how much I needed it until we were doing it and I was like, this feels amazing. Amazing. Same. Yeah, we're cranking all of our favorite tunes and it was just really, really fun and felt so freeing. Like I forgot about where I was and that I was stuck at home for that full hour and it was just really fun. Yeah, and I forgot how to have fun a little bit in ISO. Like I've been doing fun stuff, but not that let loose, throw your body around, dance and sing kind of fun. And we can all do that at home. Yeah, and obviously with the announcement that Victoria is going into stage four over the next six weeks, I think that this was just a really good reminder that we can still have fun while we're inside. And even though I know that we're feeling a little bit blah about the news, there are definitely things that we can be doing to still fill up our cups and make us happy. So encouraging you to explore those things and what they are for you. Maybe they're a dance party. Maybe they're something else. Maybe we should have a dance party with everybody. That's what I was thinking. Ooh, that would be fun. I love that idea. Mm-hmm. So let's get into today's unbelievable episode, which could not come at a better time because a lot of it is about working from home. Yes. So today's guest is Amantha Imba. She is an organizational psychologist and founder of Australia's leading innovation consultancy, Inventium. She's also the host of an incredible podcast called How I Work. So we had the most interesting time 
picking Amantha's brain about how to be working with maximum productivity in less time, how to get more done in a four-day work week than a five-day work week, which you know we loved, how changing the way we work can be boosting our happiness and so, so much more. We had chatted on this podcast a few weeks ago about the new hustle, talking about how we're over that old idea of hustling so hard and working yourself into the ground. And we were saying there must be a better way. And Amantha knows the better way. So you're about to hear all the secrets about how to achieve this new hustle where you're getting more done and you've got more time for you. Stick around till the end of the episode to hear all about what we've got in store for you guys next week and really, really enjoy Amantha. Hi, how are you guys Hi. going? Hello. Good, how are you? <laughs> very good, very good. Have we got home office set up there or real office set up? Definitely home office. Oh yeah, because we're all about non-conventional workplaces. It's something we talk about a lot, but we don't actually know anything Yeah, about we just it. talk from like feel, <laughs> not from fact. Exactly. So we were like, let's have Amantha on and let's talk about some facts. So we were really excited. We love to talk about this nine to five that was probably invented by some dude in the 1800s. And now we're all just still on that bandwagon. Do you know where Mm. it actually did all come from the way that we kind of all work now? I think it's pretty much from when we're kind of working in factories and building widgets. So a long, long time ago, and no one really questioned it when work became more office and desk based. And so why then at this point do we see so many companies just opting for that option rather than creating their own idea of what it could be? I think it's about just sticking with the default. You know, when you get a new computer or a new phone and you've just got like the default software, the default browser, Most people just accept that. And I think it's the same with work. People just accept that you do an eight or, you know, let's face it, 10, 11 hour day. And then you repeat that from Monday to Friday. That's just kind of the way that we've always done it. So why would you change it? I think that's the big problem. People just not challenging these norms. You're so right. We're such creatures of habit as human beings, even the way like once you have an iPhone, well, you're just going to keep getting the next iPhone. I'm not questioning that. I'm just going to do the same thing over and over. And there are so many things in our lives that we just do because that's the way that they've always been done and don't really stop to question them. It strikes us obviously that you are somebody who does things differently and you have gone out and questioned things. And we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what brought you to start questioning things. For sure. So my background is in psychology. So I studied organizational psychology. So did my PhD in that topic with the kind of thinking that wouldn't it be awesome to help people be happier at the place where they spend a third of their lives? I grew up in a family where my mother was and still is a clinical psychologist, so more kind of working in a counselling setting, if you like, one-on-one. And I was always fascinated by that and always fascinated by, you know, what makes people tick and wanting to have a career where I could help people be better at something. But when I started studying psych, I just thought, 
how am I going to emotionally detach from the woes that my clients would share with me every day if I went down the clinical psych path? And then I discovered organizational psychology and I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. And so that was, gosh, 20 years ago. I'm so old. (laughs) And then sort of after that, after finishing my PhD, I went on and became a consumer psychologist for a few years. And that basically involved helping people buy more crap that they didn't need and, (laughs) well, intellectually very interesting, otherwise not very satisfying work. And then I started Inventium about 14 years ago. And we, for the most part, have been an innovation consultancy. So we've helped, you know, all sorts of organizations from companies like Google, Apple, Lego, the banks, find ways to become more innovative. And as a company and as the leader of the company, I'm like, well, why can't we be more innovative in how we approach work and some of the things that we question? So for me, it was kind of really fun as an organizational psychologist to be able to almost have this playground, which was my workplace, where I was the ultimate decision maker and I could do whatever I wanted. I didn't have to like appeal to some traditional closed-minded boss because I was the boss. So that's how, you know, we ended up challenging a lot of the working norms at Inventium. So did a lot of them start within your own company before you then went and implemented them in others? Well, kind of. So what we help our clients do is we help them think more creatively and innovatively about challenges that they're facing. And we've since broadened that out quite a bit. So we now refer to ourselves as a behavioral science consultancy, where we essentially help people create change in how they approach work. So we do a lot of work, for example, in productivity and helping people use their time more wisely in terms of the time that they do spend at work. But in terms of the workplace changes, that tends to be just stuff that we experiment with Because one of my goals when I started Inventium, as well as helping companies innovate more effectively, was create the best place that anyone that works at Inventium has ever worked. That was my ideal. And so every decision that we've made as an organization about how we run the organization and management practices and policies and those sorts of things is done with that goal in mind. That's such a cool goal. And we went from running a business, just the two of us at home, to running an office and having employees. And we had that exact same thought that we were like, why would we just do things the way that they've always been done? Is that even the most effective, most productive way of doing things? And when our employees tell us that their friends hear the stories of what they get up to at work and they're like, you don't work at a real workplace. We just thrive off that. We love being able to create that for people. And it's interesting because you said that a third of people's lives are spent in a workplace. Have you kind of looked at how much a person's happiness comes from how happy they are in their jobs? I think it's inevitable that they are. And like we've all had those experiences with family members or partners where inevitably work gets brought home. Let's face it, it's really hard to separate work from non-work life. And I think to talk about work-life balance and that sort of thing is, you know, fairly outdated and not particularly helpful. But yeah, there's a huge relationship. I mean, if someone is happy at work, then they're going to be bringing home this really wonderful, energetic, probably quite optimistic self to whoever they're living with or seeing outside of work hours. But, you know, we all know people who are miserable at work or stressed or burnt out. And it's not like you can just switch that off when you go home. It carries over. So I think it's just so important. And, you know, I think that organizations have 
kind of like a duty of care to look after their staff because they do have such a big impact on their non-work lives. And in terms of that duty of care, I mean, totally, I'm with you, but I'm just imagining (laughs) if someone else is like, well, that duty of care isn't enough for me. Is there a relationship between happiness and satisfaction and an employee's productivity? You know, is it also helping your bottom line if you care about this broader idea of what a person is? Oh, 100%. You know, like one of the most expensive things from a staff point of view that organizations have to deal with is staff leaving. Because if someone leaves, you have to recruit someone else into that role. Recruitment is expensive and time consuming. You then have to train them and get them up to speed and induct them and so forth and immerse them into the culture and all those sorts of things. And that's hugely costly. I mean, there are all sorts of estimates in terms of what that costs half to one and a half times a person's annual salary are some of the statistics that I've read. So people leaving because they are unhappy, I think is the single biggest cost that's just like really obvious to look at and calculate. But certainly there's a really strong relationship between how happy and engaged people are and the quality and quantity of their output. So you mentioned some companies there like Google, Apple, Disney, Lego, American Express, Virgin, like the list is endless of awesome companies that you have worked with and helped innovate. So what are these companies usually approaching you for? Is it, we want to make our employees happier and how do you go about making changes within these organizations? How we help organizations has changed a bit over the years. I think at the moment, one of the biggest things that we're finding organizations are struggling with is how can you kind of help your people almost remember how to do deep focused work in the age of digital distraction? So there's research from Rescue Time, which is time tracking software where they analyzed it was like over a million workers' timesheet entries in terms of how they were spending their time. And they're literally tracking it on the computer so you can't fudge the data. And they found that the average desk worker is doing a just check of their email or instant messenger every six minutes. And if you think about staff and particularly knowledge workers, so people that are paid for the value of their thinking, their brain power, how much good thinking can you do if you're checking your email every six minutes? That is really limited. And it's certainly not a good thing for innovation where you're solving complex problems and having to think creatively. So we do a lot of work now and we find there's such huge demand for it for almost reteaching people how to do deep focused work when, you know, you've kind of got the siren song of email or Insta or Facebook or news trying to lure you in throughout the day. That's such an interesting fact. I love that. Straight away when you said it, I was like, shit, how often do I check mine? (laughs) How much deep thinking am I doing? So are you yourself generally an efficient person? We were really interested to chat to you about unnecessary things that we might be doing or our listeners might be doing that they could cut out to increase their efficiency. I know that my team would describe me as one of the most productive and efficient people they've ever met. So we can go with that. Oh, great. We need all your secrets. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, look, I think that one of the big problems that people have when they're thinking about their workday is most people's workdays are very reactive. People are scheduling meetings in their diary because most people have a calendar that other people can control, which when you step back and think about it, that's kind of a bit insane that you are not in charge of your diary, other people are. 
most people start their day by opening up their email and checking their inbox, which is also slightly insane because you're just starting your day to react to other people's problems and other people's goals. And I also think it's like playing Russian roulette with your mood because you don't know whether there's been going to be like a good news or bad news email in there. And there's this whole area of research in psychology around what's called circadian rhythms, which is basically like a fancy way of saying the natural ebbs and flows of our energy throughout a 24-hour period. And so researchers talk about this thing called chronotypes, which basically describes what type of person you are when it comes to like when your peak brain power is going on. So broadly speaking, there are three chronotypes that you can fall into. Some people are what chronotype researchers call larks. These are kind of like the early birds, so to speak, people that would wake naturally at 5.30 without an alarm. They would be doing their best thinking work kind of between the hours of about 7.30 to 10 a.m., then these larks are deeply irritating to people at the other end who are called owls. And owls are people that do their best work at night, ironically, when offices are closed. So that is not ideal. About one in five people are owls. And then everyone else is what's called a middle bird. So you kind of follow the rhythm of a lark, just delayed by a couple of hours. So you might naturally wake up at seven or eight in the morning, and you're probably doing your best work between about nine to 12. So if we then think about that, and certainly if you want something for the show notes, happy to share like an assessment that people can do if they want to actually assess their chronotype scientifically, but I think people kind of intuitively get what they are, is then you want to proactively design your workday based on your chronotype. So let's just say you're a lark or a middle bird, which 80% of listeners will probably be, then you want to Ideally, stay out of meetings in the morning and stay out of your inbox. Literally book a meeting with yourself so that you're working on the tasks that you are doing that require really deep focused attention. They might be strategic or analytical thinking tasks or just things that require a lot of brain power. Then typically what happens is after lunch, kind of between the hours of one and three, we go through a dip where our brain is just not as sharp. It's foggy. And psychologists refer to this as the post-lunch dip. Often happens like straight after lunch. And so this is a great time where we can be doing more kind of shallow or light work, like checking our emails, which generally doesn't require that much brain power or if social media is a part of our job, doing stuff on social or instant messenger or monitoring our Slack channel or having you know some meetings that might be team update meetings, for example. And then larks and middlebirds get a bit of a rebound, like at about three or four o'clock. And basically for owls, reverse that schedule. So structuring your day based on your chronotype is one of the most effective things that you can do to boost productivity. Okay. This is just so crazy because a month ago, we would have had no idea what you were talking about. And then we discovered chronotypes a month ago, totally (laughs) unrelated to this. All of our team went and did a quiz and we even sent out the quiz in our EDM a few weeks ago for people to test what their chronotypes are and actually... (laughs) Everybody in our team ended up being that middle bird, some kind of skewed one way or the other. But like you say, it's the most common thing. And I think Hmm. what's so interesting about these chronotypes is that it shows you that while most people fit into the middle bird, a lot of people don't fall into it. And it means that there isn't one cookie cutter way that we can all be structuring that's going to suit everybody. So 
in line with that, do you believe that the best kind of workplace is a flexible workplace where it's not, all right, everyone do this at this time, do that at that time? A hundred percent. I just think workplaces have to be flexible if they want to get the best out of people. It is insanity, I think, to prescribe people to work between the hours of nine to five when you know, based on psychology, based on neuroscience, you're just not going to get the best out of people. You're not going to get their best productivity. So why on earth would you force people into that model? To me, that makes absolutely no sense. And we've had some really crazy stats around this idea that I think the typical workday is eight or nine hours, somewhere around there. But in that time, if you're working in an office, you're only really getting four hours of good work done. If that. I think it's interesting. You know, I know that there was research that was published that showed that people are only productive for one and a half to two and a half hours a day. And that for the rest of the day, they're doing all sorts of (laughs) things that make them feel like they're kind of doing stuff because they're at the office, although obviously we're not anymore. But I've heard all sorts of stats that we are definitely not productive for the full eight hours. So then you kind of like look at concepts like the four-day work week, where essentially you get paid for five days, but you work four, not like four 10-hour days, but in theory, four eight-hour days. And if you improve how productive you are, you can still achieve the same output, but you have that fifth day off. So that's something that we're about to experiment with at Inventium. Oh, we are so excited because this is something we've talked about for a very long time. And it also (laughs) stems from the fact that we've been now full-time working in this business for eight or nine years, somewhere around there. And we're just a bit like, let's switch things up. You know, like, yes, we all work really hard and like, yeah, 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 we're really good and whatever. We love our business. Surely there's also other things that we can experience. Why don't we play in this area? So we've seen maybe a handful of companies start doing this four-day work week and it's usually a Wednesday that they take off. Is that what you're thinking and is that what you suggest or do you have a different style of thinking around it? Well, I think what's really important, and I had Andrew Barnes from Perpetual Guardian, who's is kind of like one of the leaders of this four-day work week on my podcast, How I Work, which is kind of the thing that got me really thinking about, okay, do we really commit to trialing this at Inventium? And so one of the things that he emphasizes is that your team really needs to create the guidelines. Like it needs to be co-created. It can't be management saying, we're doing the four-day work week. We're going to give this a shot. Here's all the rules. Go for it. It really needs to be something that's created from the bottom up. So that's what we're in the process of doing with the team. So in terms of days off, I think that it will be scattered, just the nature of what we do. We're a professional services firm. So our clients are still working five-day weeks and they're still wanting us to be running workshops or delivering virtual keynotes or whatever we're doing pre and during and post-COVID. So we kind of need to be able to offer that. So it probably means that the day off will be staggered, I suspect, but kind of depends on your business, whether you just have every Friday off or Wednesday or whether you need to scatter it amongst the team. Mm, It's an interesting one. I was having this conversation with a friend the other day and we were saying how the idea of having a Wednesday off and having two mini weeks is so digestible. And I feel like it would really change your relationship with what it means to be at work. It's just such an automatic built-in life work balance there. But something Jess and I have also talked about is Fridays are so fun. No one gets that (laughs) much work done on a Friday. Yeah, like Friday energy is just, I don't know, 
in our office as well. Like it's just like Friday yeah. energy. Is, it's fun energy. It's a bit softer. Yeah. Yeah. But what's interesting <laughs> is this idea that, and in COVID particularly, people have had their days cut with their salary cut. But it's such an interesting idea that, no, there's no salary cut here. You're still getting the exact same salary. And I think it's something that big companies really would need to have a big shift in their thinking around because if it's the same amount of productivity, it doesn't matter how many hours there are. That's right. And that's such a big shift for old school managers to get their head around that assess how productive a staff member is by the number of hours that they're putting in. But Mm. that's nonsensical because they could just be checking like their Insta feed all day and not actually working. Do you have things that you're going to implement in order to assess whether it is successful and whether you're more productive? Yeah. So we've done a baseline survey. So we're looking at things like productivity, job satisfaction, how engaged and happy people are. But a really big one for us as a small team is can we reduce people's intention to leave? And right now, tenure is really good. But what we know, because we do survey staff a lot, is that nothing's broken right now. Our engagement scores are in the top 5% for our industry. So it's not like we can kind of set out and go, let's make our staff even happier because there's just not that much room to move. But (laughs) as a small business and as a business that's very much based on its people and the quality of the people, anything that we can do to make people want to stay at Inventium for as long as possible is hugely valuable. Yeah. And that's really interesting what you said there around the intention to leave, because that's something that you mentioned earlier is something that businesses faced a huge cost around as well. So that's just another incentive, which makes me really excited. (laughs) Not going to lie. We just personally love the idea of a four-day work week. That sounds like (laughs) heaven. And on that intention to leave, I'm really interested to ask you about what you do for your staff in terms of managing their happiness and their goals beyond just a work setting. So we've started to do over the last six months, we were like, whoops, we're such a small business. We forgot to do regular staff reviews. And so we did a bit of research and we're like, all right, every three months, let's do staff reviews, but not just reviewing their work goals, but also reviewing their personal goals. And so I'm interested to hear if that's something that you work with your staff on, but also where things conflict with that intention to leave because a lot of the time our staff are saying to us, I love the idea of going and working overseas for two years and we're non-conventional. So we're like, woohoo, love that. You do you. But like that kind of conflicts with intention to leave. So what do you do there? It's an interesting balance, I think, when you lead a business because you want staff to stay, but you also want what's best for the individual, I think, if you're a non-psychopathic, non-narcissistic person. So it's kind of a balance between doing what's best for the business financially, because that's the thing at the end of the day that pays the salaries and employs people, but also doing what's best for the human. So I've had some amazing team members leave, but they've left for amazing opportunities. And I think because of the relationships that I've formed with them, they were very open when they were approached for these roles, once in a lifetime kind of opportunities that just met their career goals and their ambitions super well in a way that we just couldn't achieve at Inventium. So at the end of the day, yeah, like business kind of has to make money to be sustainable. But what I find exciting about running a business is you can just have this amazingly positive impact on individuals' lives. And I think that's far more important than optimizing margins or net profit or something like that. So you know, I think it's yes. just so important to see people as humans, not workers. We're constantly questioning what is our definition of success. And a few months ago, we kind of turned to each other and we were like, we get to make 
two people's lives who work with us full time really awesome and we get to create these awesome work opportunities for them we're kind of really successful that's an epic success and a really cool thing to be able to do another thing that we were really excited to talk to you about was this idea of multitasking because as women we're always told women are such good multitaskers, you know, and so often we lean into that role rather than stepping out of it. And I think that I'm definitely guilty. And I know a lot of people are of sitting on the computer and trying to do three tasks at once, not really focusing on any of them. How does that go? And how can we get out of that pattern? Yeah, this is a huge topic of what we work with our clients on. So trying to help people stop multitasking and become monotaskers, focusing on one thing at the one time. And an important distinction to make is that there's multitasking where we're kind of doing two things fairly unconsciously. We might be driving and chatting to a close friend on the phone and sort of half in the conversation, half out, don't have to be super focused, it's not a client or something like that. And, you know, we can kind of do that, although it's not ideal, even if you're doing one thing unconsciously or automatically and one thing consciously. But where the problem at work is, is if we're trying to do two things that require conscious attention. So let's just say we're trying to write a report and then every few minutes we're doing the just check of email. So kind of like shifting in and out of our inbox, which is probably like a fairly typical scenario for a lot of desk workers. And that's where things start to take longer. So There's been research done, for example, by Professor David Meyer at the University of Michigan, who found that when we task switch or multitask our way through to activities, they'll end up taking about 40% longer than they would have if we'd just done one task and then done the other task. Well, yeah, I know, crazy, right? So if you extrapolate that out to, let's say, an eight-hour workday, and let's say right now you are multitasking, or I'd prefer task switching because theoretically or neurologically speaking, you're not doing two things at the one time. It is impossible to consciously focus on two things at once. So you are task switching, albeit really quickly. So let's just say right now you're task switching your way through the day and you listen to this episode and you go, oh, monotasking. I'll apply that. That'll just be the only thing I'll apply from this episode. In theory, if you're doing nine to five, you could now go home at 2.30, having achieved the exact same output. Oh my God. How cool is that? Pretty cool. (laughs) That's really cool. That's incredible information as well when you're talking about cutting out one day of work a week because if you were employing that monotasking, then it makes perfect sense that you would then have an extra day. Why aren't we monotasking? Yeah, and how can we be better at that? Digital addiction and digital distraction is the biggest barrier. And so where people go wrong is they rely on their willpower to stay out of apps that are highly addictive, whether they be social media apps, whether it be your email or instant message app or Slack or even refreshing your news feed or all those sorts of things. So in terms of assessments that I've seen, a large proportion of the population are suffering from some form of digital addiction. And people go, okay, well, I'm just going to try and stay out of my inbox for the morning, just relying on willpower. And with our willpower muscle, it's basically a limited resource. So the more of it we use, the less of it we have. And because we're drawing on willpower for all sorts of things during the day, like with every decision that we make, trying to make good decisions, our willpower gets lower and lower. So like if you think about trying to be on a diet, for example, like no one ever breaks a diet at eight in the morning, 
But people break diets from about like two or three o'clock in the afternoon onwards. And that's because their willpower muscle is starting to be depleted. So same thing when we're talking about having good work hygiene and staying off digital distractions. So what you want to do is you actually want to try to avoid using willpower to kick your digital distraction and instead put barriers in the way that just make it hard to engage with the digital world. For example, there's an app that I love that I used a lot when I was trying to break my bad habits that's called Freedom. So freedom.2 is the website and I know there's a free version and you can basically program it to lock you out of apps or websites at certain times of day. So for example, I'm mostly speaking a lark-ish in my chronotype and so my best work is generally done you know, between the hours of about 8 to 10, 8 to 11, obviously school pickup can get in the way of that when I've got my daughter. And so I used to use freedom to block myself out of any digital temptations so that I just work. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm locked out of that. I kind of want to use it. I kind of want to check my email because I'm feeling a bit stuck and I need some relief. You know, that's ultimately like why we do turn to digital distractions because we do get stuck and we do want the relief that those apps give us. But if you're locked out, then you just kind of have to keep going. So I find that things like that can be really helpful. That's awesome. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. And you mentioned instant messenger and Slack there. We use Slack, which is obviously an internal communications channel, kind of like WhatsApp, but people use it for businesses instead. And Slack is one that I have really noticed in the lead up to our interview with you, how often it is interrupting me because I have notifications on. So I'll be working on something, but a little notification will come up and I've tried to be like, oh, I won't get into it. But even if I just read it, that little notification, I'm already distracted. So What's the best way of internally communicating with a team? Is Slack good? Should we be emailing instead or should we not have our notifications on our Slack? How do you keep in touch as a team, particularly when if not everyone's in the office or people are working remotely? Notifications is a big one. So in marketing, there's this term that marketers use called hygiene factors. And these are just almost like the cost of entry to be a product in the market. If you're a laundry detergent, a hygiene factor would be that you have to clean the clothes. You have to produce clean clothes if you're a laundry detergent. And I think when we're talking about digital distractions and doing deep focused work, turning off notifications is a hygiene factor. If you have not turned off notifications of your email, of Slack, of anything that is buzzing up on your phone, any of your devices, laptop, et cetera, then you just have to do that now. And you will find that it is so much easier to get work done. And you might kind of go, well, listeners might be thinking, well, it's just a notification. What if I'm not checking it? Like surely that can't do harm. But there was some interesting research from the University of London. And what they found is that just the pure act of notifications going on in the background while you were trying to work, not even like reading them, but just kind of seeing that they were there, decreased IQ by 10 points. And to put that in perspective, a 10-point drop in IQ is the equivalent of losing a night's sleep. Whoa. We're talking pretty major. So switch off your notifications. And isn't that such a misconception? I feel like it's a hang-up that people have, the idea that when they turn, for example, their email or their Slack notifications off, that then they're 
not as dedicated or that they're not as in it or something like that. And I think that we struggled with that probably for the first five years of our business. We had email notifications on on our phones. And even on the weekend, when people would be emailing us, it would make our time more stressful. You know, it was really hard to switch off and get recharged on the weekend if we have someone emailing us constantly. But then there was still that self-talk of, oh, well, then maybe I'm not as dedicated. Oh, well, then maybe I'm not doing my job properly. Maybe I'm not doing what's expected of me. That's crazy. I think people really struggle with expectations around email. And I know when we're working with our clients around that, they're like, well, that's really bad if I don't respond to someone in an hour. And it's like, is someone going to die if that doesn't happen? No. Why is that bad? You could easily be in a three-hour meeting and you wouldn't feel guilt not checking your emails for three hours. But again, it's just like these internal assumptions that we need to challenge and go, is it really that important? And if your boss genuinely makes a link between how responsive you are on email and how good you are as an employee, then I think you need to chat to your boss and go, if I'm constantly on email and reacting, I can't do deep focused work because I'm checking my email constantly. So what would you prefer? Maybe really quick with email responses or me switch off from email for an hour or two every day and actually do work. So if notifications are all turned off, I'd love to talk about what is the best way to be communicating as a team. We actually had a cousin who worked over in Bend, Oregon in the US and she worked in a really progressive company and they had some strict rules around, all right, I think it was 8 a.m. till 10 a.m. Everyone does meetings then, 10 a.m. till 12 p.m. You have to be available on your email or whatever and outside of that, it's totally up to you. Is having a structure like that too strict and doesn't fit in with everybody's chronotypes? Or is it good to have systems like that in place where everybody can be online? How do we make sure we're still keeping in contact with the team? I think it's a really interesting question. And we're doing some research into this at the moment to go like, how do you optimize team productivity? So we've done so much around individual productivity, but what's the best way for teams to communicate? And I think you know, it depends on what that communication is. Most of the time, team communication can be shallow communication where it's just quick yes or no things, updates, that kind of thing doesn't really require a lot of brain processing. Saving those sorts of things for around lunchtime or a bit after lunchtime tends to work best. But ironically, most teams, particularly teams that are using agile ways working or whatever buzzword they're doing, they generally have their stand-ups or their team updates in the morning when Mm. most people have their best quality brain power, which is insane. Guilty. We are guilty of that. No, okay. (laughs) Two days ago, someone was making me feel guilty that we didn't have a morning stand-up every day. And I was like, why do we need that? We're such a small company. They're like, it's so important. But you're so right. So we have our Monday morning whip, 10 a.m. There are four of us, but it usually goes to like midday. Like we just sit around chatting Mm. and I always feel my least productive after that. And I feel like I've wasted those couple of hours. That's so true. If it is a meeting that's largely about updates and information sharing where you don't need super good brain power, do them at lunch, do them over lunch, do them after lunch. That is the best time for that stuff. You know, I think it's a complete myth that people need to start the day together as a team. I mean, like if you've built a good team culture, then it's not like the team suddenly like disconnect from each other overnight. And then they're like, who's my team? Do I still (laughs) trust them? (laughs) Totally. And then right now we're all working from home, which 
we secretly love because we love working from home. That's where we have our brain power moments. But we know that some people don't love it. So we'd love to hear from you. How do you feel about working from home versus office work? What's your mentality towards it? I love working from home. So I'm naturally quite introverted. I don't need to be around other people to feel happy and energized. I do still like social contact and that's important, but I'm just so much more productive at home because there's no interruptions. It's like I'm in heaven. I would probably be happy being in lockdown for another few months. Same. <laughs> yeah, I love it. But I know the team are mixed. So at the moment, we're thinking about what do we do with our Melbourne and Sydney offices, what we're leaning towards doing. And again, we'll probably run some experiments is either having a central place where we can all gather one day a week. So maybe on Fridays or something, you know, depending on also what we do with the four day work week. And the other thing we're exploring is maybe going, well, maybe once every six weeks, we get together in the same physical location as a team. We maybe do some sprints if there are some tricky problems that we want to collaborate on or we just enjoy each other's company for one week out of every six and the rest of the time we still work remotely. So we're kind of thinking, what do we do? Because we are getting rid of both our long-term leases in Melbourne and Sydney at the moment. Oh, permanently. Mm, Yes. I love that. It's such a great opportunity for innovation. And you, of course, are just harnessing it. On like being more personally efficient, where does being a perfectionist sit in with this? I noticed when I was scrolling through your podcast that the way that you write your titles, there's not necessarily like a rhythm to it. And for me, when I write things, they've got to be so tight and all in the same box. And then I looked at how you were doing things and I just (laughs) felt like you were just more of a put it all out there kind of person and not overthink it. Is that how you find that you are really efficient? Yeah, that's really true. So I used to be a crazy perfectionist and maybe in my early 30s, I realized that that was not serving me and far better to get stuff out into the world, even if it's not perfect, so that I can iterate it and get feedback and improve it as opposed to just wait until everything's perfect and probably not have as big an impact because I'm just waiting to perfect things. And I think that's kind of an excuse for avoiding like shipping stuff, so to speak. So yeah, I'm not a perfectionist anymore, but that was not an easy switch to change. It really is about going, well, 80% is generally good enough. That final 10 or 20%, let's say, is generally not going to have a huge difference on how much impact something will have. Like whether that be the title of a podcast, one of the columns that I'm writing, a product that we're putting out into the world, that 20% will come. Like if it's a product and we're iterating it, that's fine. But better start getting feedback earlier rather than later. That's such good advice for you. Yeah, I know. I really need that (laughs) advice. Monotasking and being less of a perfectionist. I feel like I'm going to be on a three-day work week. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd love to round out our conversation just by defining exactly the feedback that you receive from some of these organizations that you go into and you implement some of these strategies because at the end of the day when we love to talk about feelings people love to tell us oh it's so fairy tale it's so fluffy but it's actually so interesting to hear from you who has so many facts and you've surveyed and the statistics so what actually do these things give organizations or small businesses I think one of the things that we hear a lot with all the productivity work that we're doing is just 
people feeling like the way that they work has been transformed. They kind of go, I could never go back to how I used to run my day or how I used to work. And just sort of seeing that in people, almost as if these secrets have been unlocked and now they know them and they're working so much more productively and they can spend more time with their family or they can just feel so much happier at work and how they're approaching their jobs. For me, that's the best. And that's exactly why I became an organizational psychologist to have that transformative effect on people. I love that. And we so encourage people to go and listen to your podcast as well. We'll definitely include it in the show notes too. We would love to wrap up with some quick fires if that's cool with you. So the first one is how do you switch off? How do I switch off? I read a lot and I'm pretty disciplined with exercise as well. And I find when I'm exercising, I'm often listening to podcasts and I'm off in another world listening to something that probably has nothing to do with what I do for work. What does a work day look like for you? A work day typically looks like exercise first thing in the morning. I feel that that just is good for the brain and body. Then if I've got my daughter who I've got 50% of the time, it'll be mucking around with her before school and having fun and maybe playing some guitar and singing songs is what we're really into at the moment. And then in terms of the workday, the morning is all about deep focused work. And then typically the afternoon is about meetings and communication and you know, a bit of shallow work doing email and things like that. And then afternoon might be with my daughter and again, just having fun mucking around. Or if it's just me, it might be like, talking on the phone to a friend, maybe meeting up with a friend for a walk and just a bit of a break. But yeah, spending time with friends and family. Do you have any favorite apps for efficiency? I think you mentioned, was it Freedom before? And we use an amazing one called Follow Up Then that we've talked about a lot. Mm, Yes. My favorite apps for email, I love Superhuman. It is the best email client software, I think is the technical term that I have found that plays with Gmail and maybe with Outlook. There's a big waiting list, but Superhuman is awesome. And I love, there's two great mobile apps. Oh, one is actually across devices called Pocket. With Pocket, you have a plugin on your internet browser. And when you see an article that will normally kind of lead you down an article black hole and you'll just read and read and read and you'll forget what you're working on. Instead with Pocket, you can save it to Pocket. And so you can actually batch read your articles so that they're not actually forming a distraction in your day. You can be deliberate about reading articles. And I love the app Forest on the mobile phone. So if you're kind of guilty of just checking your phone all the time, but you want to do, let's say, a block of deep focused work for an hour, you can open up Forest, set it for, say, 60 minutes. And during that time, it will grow a virtual tree. But if you check your phone during that 60 minutes, the tree dies. And I know it's virtual, but it's very motivating. That's amazing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like Tamagotchi for adults. (laughs) It totally is. Yes. I feel like we need pocket for social media as well. You know, like I feel like social media is the whole that I often get lost in and I just need to be able to save everything and just look at 10 things. And that's all I'm allowed to look at. Mm, Yes. (laughs) What are you usually doing on Friday at 5 PM? It varies. And probably like right now in COVID, I am either preparing dinner with my daughter or I'm possibly got a friend coming around for dinner. So I may be getting ready for that. So very much a homebody, but I'm probably with someone or preparing to be with someone. Awesome. And the last one is if you weren't working at Inventium, what would you be doing in like a parallel universe, different life? 
if I was a triple threat, like if I could act, dance and sing, I'd be on Broadway. Well, not at the moment, but in theory, I would be starring in Broadway musicals. Amazing. Well, Love you can that. sing, right? Because you have an album. Uh, yes. Like Samantha without the S. Right? You've done your research. That is correct. <laughs> and I laugh because that's how I remembered your name at first was like Samantha without the S. Well, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak to us. We seriously appreciate it. Your knowledge is just incredible. And I think you are totally going to be changing the way that we work and hopefully that so many people are working. And your podcast, How I Work, is where people can find you for a lot more incredible knowledge on this topic and I think that is going to be on my podcast app in repeat from now on. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I feel like I learned so much from Amantha. Since our conversation, I've actually been trialing monotasking and I can report that I am being so much more productive. I can't believe it. When I do do it, And I don't do it every day because I'm not being that good about it. But when I do decide to go into a day and monotask, honestly, by lunchtime, I'll have gotten through what I was planning on doing the whole day. It's incredible. It's so, so good. I've actually been trying out being less of a perfectionist. And trust me, if you are a perfectionist, this is going to save you so, so much time. So if you did get a lot out of this episode, we would absolutely love to ask you a little favor and just get you to hit that share button and send this episode to a friend who would really benefit from listening to this episode. Next week on the podcast, we've got part two coming for you of our mental health struggles. So last week we spoke to you guys about our own personal journeys within mental health. It was more of my story that you heard really, but in part two, you're going to be hearing more from Steph. Take a listen. From the second I got there, I was in this cottage in the middle of nowhere, countryside UK across the world. Can't wait to share that with you next week, you guys. And for this week, take care of yourselves and don't forget to really connect and stay positive and do things that really make you feel good while you are in ISO. We will be here for you if you need us. Please come and connect with us on Instagram at How to Live the Podcast and Facebook, How to Live the Podcast. See you guys. Sending you so much love. Bye. See ya.